Well, thank you very much to CJ for reading that parallel passage in the book of Luke. We're going back, as we were studying for quite some time, to the book of Matthew and to chapter 6. So if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 6, we're really looking this morning at just four words. Four words, and we're going to be talking about the fact that we're praying when we pray to our Father who is in heaven. And um, while we're only talking about four words... Uh, These four words are so full of beauty and power and depth that we could spend much longer than one sermon talking about them. In fact, we're going to spend next Sunday as well uh, talking about the implications of this. But this morning, what I hope to be able to do uh, is to be able to somehow present to you the unbelievable, unthinkable privilege of calling God your Father. When I was a little boy, I was really shy, and, um, and I had a habit that was a lot like probably a lot of other uh, little children. Um, when I was needing security or looking for some kind of a reassurance, I would run over and grab my dad's leg, and, um, and it was really comforting. My dad, to me, was kind of a tower of strength, and I, my dad could do anything, and if I needed anything, he was certainly the one that I would call on for that help, and... And this was not normally a problem, the habit of running over and grabbing his leg. But uh, one Sunday, as we were at our little church, Sierra Baptist in Newcastle, California, I ran over in the foyer and grabbed my dad's leg. And and then I did my homework. And I looked up. And I had the wrong dad's leg. And... (laughs) Mr. Chulik was a very nice man, but he wasn't my dad. And, and can I just tell you this morning, as we begin to think about this very amazing privilege, it matters who your dad is, and it matters that you seek the right father. We're going to read here now that passage that we're addressing in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, this that Jesus Uh, teaches his disciples, and that includes us, to pray. He says this, beginning in verse 9, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' day, day, the Jews were running for comfort to their father, their father Abraham. Uh, This was a man who was connected to God, they thought, and we're connected to him, so we must be connected to God. Kind of an all-the-way-around discussion of lineage and relationship. But Jesus is here directing our attention past physical lineage, or who your earthly dad is, to your Father in heaven, and the relationship that we have with him is not indirect, but direct. We are praying directly to our Father in heaven and hearing him respond to us as we come in his Son, the Lord Jesus. Now, just to remind you kind of where we're at, we're talking about four relationships here in this prayer. We're really just touching on the first one. Can you believe we're still on the first one? But, uh, but here we are, we first are talking about the fact that God is our Father. And then as we move through, you'll see that we're talking about God as our King. Your kingdom come, it says in verse 10. Your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. And, and then we see that God is our provider, so we can ask him for our daily bread. And we can ask him not only for our daily bread, but even for forgiveness when we have trespassed. And, and then we're asking our guide to take us through the difficult parts of life. That includes temptation and places where evil is lurking for us. So that's kind of the overview. That's where we're going eventually. Um, I don't know how many months it might be before we eventually get to those points. But this morning, we're specifically just talking about these four words. God is our Father, our Father in heaven. Really, there's no more astonishing way that Jesus could begin a prayer, that he could teach us to pray, than to call God by this name, our Father, You know, it's a great thing to know that God knows everything. And we've spent quite a bit of time here in the past Sundays that I've been preaching talking about the fact that God does know everything. And and that's the immediate context of this prayer, that God knows what you're doing in secret, and he rewards you in secret. He, He knows what's going on in your closet. He knows the things that nobody else knows about you. And that's a great thing. But it's even more amazing that this God who knows everything about you, who knows all the things that, frankly, you may not even yet know about yourself, this God who knows you so intimately now says, call me by the most intimate name possible, your Father. It would be a great thing if God said to us, you, uh, you may call me Master. It's a great thing to be the servant of God. Uh, what, a, what a privilege to work for the king of heaven. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty amazing idea that God would give us the chance to serve him, to work together with him, not just for the good of the world, but in the process of doing good for others, experiencing God's goodness to us. That would be a great thing. And so we could say, great, we'll call you master, our master in heaven. Or, or it would be great if he said, can you imagine Call me your friend. And Jesus actually does call us his friends. If you look at John chapter 15, and he he calls us his friends for two reasons. He calls us his friends, and these are amazing. We can spend a whole sermon just on these. He says he calls us his friends because he loves us. Well, that's amazing. The, The greatest love, Jesus says, in John chapter 15 is demonstrated in this, that a man would, you know, lay down his life for his, for his friends. And so in saying that, Jesus is calling his disciples his friends. He's saying, I'm calling you my friends. You're the friends of God. And he's also saying that you're my friends because I've told you my heart. I've told you the most intimate things that I have heard from my Father in heaven. This is what Jesus says in John 15, 15. He says, all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. So think, Jesus could say, you could address God as your friend. You could address him as a master. That would be an amazing privilege to be working for him. You could address him as your friend. Can you imagine the comradeship of someone who loves you and who tells you the intimate details of his heart? What a great thing. But Jesus doesn't use those two amazing ways to come to God. He says, call me Call me Father. This relationship to God as our Father puts us, frankly, in the only position, the only position by which we can approach the King of the universe with our smallest needs or concerns. 
CJ just read for us in Luke chapter 11. And I wonder if you caught the impudence. My Bible actually translates it impudence. The impudence of this friend who comes knocking on the door in the middle of the night. I want you to be, now this morning, I want you to be the person in bed. Think about it. You are the person in bed. And this friend comes knocking in the middle of the night. You've been in bed several hours now. It's the middle of the night. And you are in a deep sleep. It was a long day. And you have another long day coming. It's a small house, so your children are in bed with you. It says that the children were in bed with this guy. Yeah. So, so any disturbance that comes upon this house, you parents know what's going to happen. The kids are going to wake up. Right? So, so the children are in bed with you, and, uh, and the only sound that fills the air is the sound of breathing. You've been in a room that quiet before, and especially if you happen to be in bed with your children. Never tried that, but uh, I can only imagine. We could hear our children crying or whimpering, and sometimes we might hear them breathing, but most of that, but you're in bed with your children. You can hear nothing outside but the sound of your children breathing, and then there comes this funny sound. And at first you think, hey, maybe it's a rodent in the rafters. I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, something got into the house. And then it comes again. And it's like, oh, no, that's definitely, that has to be a knock. There's someone at the door in the middle of the night. And as the, you, 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 you know, what are you going to do? You're a parent. You're in bed. You're trying not to wake the kids. So you're saying in the quietest, loud voice that you can say it, who's there? Who, who's there? Of course, at the moment that you're doing that, the littlest one is starting to rustle, and you know that pretty quick they're going to be crying. And, and the person on the other side of the door has no qualms about just belting it out. I'm here, and I need some bread. I've got a friend from out of town, and I need to be able to feed him. You got a loaf of bread for me? Now, remember, you're the person in bed. How are you feeling right now? I mean, this isn't even an emergency. This is, if the guy was bleeding and had just been beat up outside my door, um, I would at least think, yeah, that seems reasonable to call on me to dial 911 for him. <laughs> this guy is just talking about a meal for a friend who arrived out of town unexpectedly, and he's knocking on my door in the middle of the night, waking up my children, depriving me of sleep for the coming day, and saying, I just need some bread. You got some bread? Now, again, how are you feeling about this? I, I mean, I think that there's a number of things I'd be feeling. Mad would be the first one. How rude would be another one. What impertinence would be another one. Another one might be, if we were friends before, we sure aren't now. And the final one would probably just be, get out of here. I'm not happy about this. I don't want to be waked up in the middle of the night. Now, when I was a, when I was a boy, uh, my dad got up very early to go to work. And that wasn't the case for all the people in the church. And my dad was very much involved in the leadership of the church. And, and it was in those days that we had rotary telephones. Some of you remember rotary telephones. This was a, a tan rotary telephone. And you would dial, and it would roll all the way back. Pastor Kyle's got it. He's, just, he's old enough. To, he's 50 now. He can do this. So here, and all the way back. And, and, and guess what? When those phones rang, they didn't play your favorite ringtone. They sounded like a fire alarm going off. 
And my dad kept this telephone in a drawer under his side of the bed. Now, remember, my dad gets up very early in the morning, like really early, and people would occasionally call him from the church later than his bedtime. How do you think he felt about that? <laughs> I knew, because I was his boy, how he felt about that. And it wasn't pretty. And so that's just with a telephone ringing. And so here we have someone who's knocking on my door and won't go away saying, and it's not because someone has died or because there's blood on the ground. It's because I just need a loaf of bread. You got a loaf of bread for me because I got a friend who came into town. This is the picture that, that we're playing, that Jesus is playing out in our relationship to the Father. You'll notice actually at the end of Luke chapter 10, as the section that 11, excuse me, that CJ was reading that this is playing directly into our God who is our Father. And he's asking some important questions. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, this is verse 11 of chapter 11, the book of Luke, uh, instead of a fish, will give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit the very best possible gift to those who ask Him? This guy is just knocking at the door. He's belting out his request. And we're thinking things like, you should have planned better. Um, and that's called finding fault. Or... That's your trouble, not mine. And that's called disavowing responsibility. Or tell your guest to take a glass of water, close his eyes, and morning will be before, here before he knows it. And that's just giving advice. Or we might say, deal with it. And that's just ignoring his request. That's what we would do. And that's precisely why Jesus tells this story to illustrate the model prayer. Because it's not what your heavenly Father does when you come to him. Jesus is actually inviting us to come and knock on the door of heaven, to call on the king of the universe at any hour with the smallest, most seemingly insignificant need and to ask the God of heaven, who is your father, to meet that need. The only person who would dare to rouse the king of the universe in such a way is his child. That's the only person who could possibly have such an impudent approach to the king. This is the relationship that we have with God through Jesus. Because God is our father, we can pray with, it says right in Luke 11 in my translation, with impudence. We can pray with impudence. We can ask God for anything. We can call on him at any time. When I was growing up, I've told you before that my room, my brother and I lived in a, we slept in a room that was directly opposite the hall from my parents' room. And um, my dad did not like to hear that telephone ring at night. But just a little whimper from one of his boys. And he was thundering across the hall to meet whatever the need happened to be. Can I say that your Father in heaven invites you to that kind of a relationship? My dad wasn't mad with me because I had a need. Now, there were things that, <laughs> that did disrupt his sleep. 
that did anger him, like fooling around and talking late at night and so forth like this, but not if I had a need. If I had a need, I could call on my father for any need, even just a little whimper would bring him charging across the hall to meet that need, even if it was very small, like being scared in the dark. God's inviting you by the nature of giving you the chance to call him father, to come to him, just to come. To come in the simplicity and the impudence of a little child to his father. God is our father. And this really changes everything. It changes everything in this way. Because we have a relationship with God, we actually can enjoy the process of beginning to change. If you have not if you don't know God as your father, it's actually going to be impossible for you to, to practice or to enjoy systemic essential change. We'll talk about this more in the future, but, but here's, the, here's the challenge. There are many things that can help you toward change that are out there. We've talked about self-help books and so forth, and let me just tell you that in some of those books, there are helpful techniques some of them, not all of them, but there can be actually helpful techniques. Can a person stop smoking apart from knowing God is his father? You can know people like that, right? Can a person uh, conquer issues with their weight or stop swearing? or you, you name a whole host of those things that we call pernicious habitual sins. Can a person deal with those through appropriate or through, through helpful techniques? And the answer is possibly. Possibly. But... If we're to experience systemic, essential change, they cannot help. They can't help. If we are to experience change that is from the inside out, only one thing avails, and that is to know God as your Father. That's the beginning point. That's the very start, the germinal place where, from which all growth comes. That's the spot. If you know God as your father, then you are in a position for the very first time to actually begin being changed from the inside out. There's nothing more powerful, nothing more beautiful than having the right to call God father. And there's no other premise for real, thoroughgoing, essential change. And the only way to the father is through Jesus. What a beautiful thing. But there's more. There's more because this relationship that we have with God is, get this, a relationship of love. This is a relationship of love that we have with our Father in heaven. I remember uh, throwing a fit as a boy. I'm sure that's impossible to imagine, but um, throwing a fit about doing chores. I hated chores. I didn't want to do things that I didn't want to do. And, and I remember um, in this thinking that it, uh, to, I used the argument with my dad, Danny and Don Deckard down the dirt road from us at the end of the lane, Pastor Kyle went to school with Dan, and um, Danny and Don don't have to do this. Your kids ever tried that one on you? But my friends don't have to do this kind of thing. And, um, and my dad assured me that that was okay because I wasn't the Deckard's little boy. <laughs> Larry Deckard was a very nice man, but he was not my father. I liked Larry Deckard, and I actually may have even contemplated the possibility of trying to join a new family, but, 
but it didn't change or alter the fact that I was in this family. My father was not going to let me go. And you know why he wouldn't let me go? Because he loved me, and I was his by love. The fact that your father loves you means that he also is going to protect you from every evil that is going to stand between you and everything that is bad for you. And sometimes we like that, and then sometimes we don't. But in each of these situations, I want to remind you, whether you like it or whether you don't, these are testaments to the fact that this father in heaven, by whom you call him, this father loves you. And he loves you so much that he's going to take care of everything that is a concern to you. It would be easier to pull all the atoms in the universe apart than to separate you from the love of God. That's what Romans 8, by the way, tells us at the end. It would be easier to do something so astonishing as pulling apart the atoms of the universe than to separate you from the love of God. It is utterly impossible for you to be separated from the love of God. Let me show you why that's true. Here it is. God loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. That's why it's impossible for you to be separated from the love of God. God loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. If it were possible, if the, if the love of God for me were somehow based on who I am, it would be possible for me to be separated from that love because I'm very fickle. I'm up and down, and I'm sometimes loving God, and sometimes I'm really not very much loving God. And, and there are times when I'm obedient to God, and there are times when I'm complaining about everything that he tells me to do. And, um, and, and that would be, if that were built on me, if the love of God for me were established on the fact that I was so loving to him, we'd be in big trouble, but it isn't. God loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. John Chrysostom, who lived in the 400s, 300s and 400s, uh, wrote this. He said, why did he, God, love us? And he says this, for those things, catch this, for those, and this is why God loves us, for those things that are not deserving of love. Did, did you hear what he just said? God loves you for those things that are not deserving of love. There's just nothing in you that makes him love you. It's because of what's in him. This is what Christensen continues to say. Why did he, God, love us? For those things that are not deserving of love, but of the sorest wrath and punishment. And thus, says Christensen, it was of great mercy. Speaking to his people in the book of Deuteronomy, God reasons this way. This is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord your God set his love upon you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because, catch this, but it is because the Lord loves you. <laughs> can, can you. Can you even grasp that? Why do I love you? And the Lord says, because I love you. It, it sounds circular, doesn't it? It's, it's like going around in a circle. And the answer is, it is circular. It is circular. The entire basis for the love of God is his own character and his own sovereign choice. Self-aggrandizing thoughts that were better or nicer or 
in the case of the Israelites, more in number than any other people, or maybe were at least not as bad as other people are, such thoughts are completely stripped by such a love. God does not love us because of anything good in us, but because he's good. And then Deuteronomy tells us, I love you because I keep my word. The author of Hebrews reflects on this self-determined faithfulness in these words. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Do you feel that again going around the circle? Yes. God doesn't keep his word because someone else is holding him accountable. God keeps his word because he is true to the core. And so your father loves you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. If that's true, if that's true, that God didn't love us for anything in us, then nothing can stop him from loving us. Think of that. If it's true that God doesn't love you because of you, then absolutely nothing can stop him from loving you. If God didn't make us sons and daughters because we looked like good additions to the family, then there's nothing that can stop him from calling himself our father This is the most secure position in the world. If I did nothing to earn the love of God, then there's nothing I can do to be unloved by him. But your old father, the devil, likes to whisper lies about this to you. And the way that he lies to you is in a couple of different ways. He often will say something like this. You've done too much bad stuff for God to love you. Or you haven't done enough good stuff. For God to love you. You have done too much bad stuff or you haven't done enough good stuff for God to actually love you. Uh, in theological terms, we call those sins of omission and sins of commission. Things that we haven't done but should have done or things that we have done and we shouldn't have done. And it's true that we should not sin against this God who loves us as a father loves his children. But those things whether sins of omission or sins of commission, cannot stop him from loving you. Do you want to know how you can tell the voice of God from the voice of the, your old father, the devil, in this regard? I'm just going to give you two simple ways, and then we're going to move on quickly. God's spirit always tells the truth about God and about you. He always tells the truth about God and about you. So he reminds you that your father loves you and that he'll protect you and that he'll deliver you from evil. He convicts you of sin, not to condemn, but to set you free to live in deeper, richer awareness of the love of God than ever before because nothing, not even your sin, can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit tells you that confessing your sin does not give God new information. We've talked about that. Does not give new inf God new information that somehow this was a surprise to God that you're bringing to him when you confess things and that it might in some way shake the relationship. No, 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 you're not giving God new information. And Jesus knew this sin when he died for you. His blood is enough and his righteousness is sufficient. The Holy Spirit tells you that your righteousness never did and never will do anything to make you more loved by 
God. The Holy Spirit reminds you that you're loved by your Father because of who he is, not who you are. But this is what the devil says, your old father. He tells you that you can't be loved by God unless you do better, or unless you work harder, or unless you fix the problem. That's, that's what he tells you. And that will stop you from experiencing real change if you listen to him. It, it'll stop you from actually being transformed from the inside. The, the devil tells you, he, he shames you. And he shames God. He reiterates the old lie that God is selfish and that he, he can't possibly love you unconditionally. That he's actually out for his own good and that he's using you to get what he wants. That's what he tells you. And it'll stop you from experiencing change if you believe him. He lies that you're just a pawn in the hands of a remote deity. That you really don't matter. That you're not worth anything and you never will be worth anything. You've probably heard some of these lies from Satan. He, he lies that confessing your sin will actually separate you from God. As if God didn't know the truth about you already. He lies that confessing separates instead of brings you near. When confessing your sin is actually the practice of drawing near to God. It's the practice of coming close to him. It's the one place from which you can, and this is why he lies this way, it's the one position from which you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. Check the book of James out. That, that's the only thing, that's the spot from which you actually have the authority by Jesus Christ to resist the devil. So he's going to lie to you on that point and tell you that confessing your sin will separate you from God rather than put you in the place of proximity to God from which you can resist him. This is essential if you are to essentially change. Here's the principle. The principle is that real change is possible for this reason and this reason alone, that we are inescapably loved by the one who matters most. It's only in the security of such a relationship, a relationship of love with the Father in heaven, it's only in such a security that we're free to take radical steps that, that change is going to demand. It's only in the absolute certainty of this relationship that we're able to let go of the chains that bind us, that we're able to move into the foreign territory of the kingdom of God. You are so loved by your Father. But there's more. Because our Father who loves us is in heaven. Our Father who loves us, is in heaven. This is the creator God you speak to. The God who made heaven and, on, and earth and who has all authority in both. Think about what that means. If our God were just one God in a pantheon of gods, he might be powerful, but he would not be all-powerful. He might be able to help you if he were so inclined, but he would not certainly be able to help you. But that's not your God. You are speaking, when you call upon God the way Jesus tells us to pray, to the Father who loves you, who is in heaven, the one and only, above all, in every way, beyond 
This is the Father to whom you pray. Our God is in heaven. I love the way Psalm 2 describes God. It says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, speaking of his enemies, will have them in derision. There's just no challenge to this king. There is no one who can stand up to such a God. And I love the way it continues in Psalm 103. It says this, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There's going to be no coup that will overthrow the king of heaven. Hold on to that when you get discouraged looking at the political landscape. Or things that are going on in your family. Or concerns that you personally have. Or your health issues. Hold on to that reality. This king will not be overthrown. And this king who is in heaven is your father. Who loves you. Now I'm aware, and I want to take a moment, and I think we're going to end here. To say that I know that you have, many of you, different relationships with earthly fathers. I know that. And so for some of you, when I say the word father, or when Jesus here invites us to call God our father, we have different pictures come to mind. And I want to tell you that Jesus has two specific things that he's teaching us about God the Father here that will help us to understand the relationship and the pictures that you have in your mind right now. Because if you have the wrong picture, I'm going to just be honest, I think it's going to be very hard for you to call God your Father. And the wrong pictures come in two ways. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. The first is that there are some similarities between God and earthly fathers. There are some similarities. Look at what Jesus says here in chapter 7, same sermon, chapter 7, and in verse 7, and I'm just going to read this for you. We're going to, we're going to end here. Chapter 7 and in verse 7, he says, ask, this is the parallel you heard CJ read it in Luke, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, now listen, listen to the description of earthly fathers. Hold, hold your hats. If you then, Jesus says, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, before we unpack that further, let me just say Jesus is making a statement that there are some similarities between earthly fathers and the heavenly father. Let's just assume that that the fall had never happened. If the fall had never happened, earthly fathers would have been a good picture of the heavenly father. But even then, earthly fathers would never picture the full extent of the nature of our relationship with an infinite God we call father. It would have been the same type of relationship, but not to the same extent. And so... Jesus is here calling on a built-in paternal pattern that should be the normal in a world that, that isn't cursed by sin. But the world is cursed by sin. So some of you remember Father with happy, warm memories and, and uh, good 
thoughts that come back to your mind, emotions that are welling up inside you, and you think all those cozy things and secure thoughts like grabbing your dad's leg, and, and some of you don't. Jesus is saying that the normal pattern, the normal pattern is that if your child's hungry and asks for bread, dads don't normally say, go chew on rocks. And, and dads, if a child says, could I have a fish, dads don't normally slip them a snake. Or to use the Luke passage, if your child comes and says, dad, I'm, I'm really hungry, would you give me an egg? Luke says, he doesn't hand him a scorpion. So, so Jesus is here calling on the normal paternal pattern, what should be. Earthly dads, for the most part, still bear some resemblance to the Heavenly Father, even though it's been marred by the fall. And there's something of the original design that still shows through. But please don't misunderstand that this is a general statement, because there are many dads for whom not even this much can be said. So the first thing Jesus is teaching is that there are some similarities between earthly dads and our Heavenly Father. But the second thing he's teaching us is that there are huge dissimilarities. Huge dissimilarities. Did you hear what Jesus said here? Look at what it says in verse 11 of chapter 7, Matthew. If you then, catch these words, you then who are evil. That, <laughs> Jesus just made a sweeping statement. He called every earthly Father, evil. That's what he just did. Normally we kind of read over that and think of all the good things that God is going to give us because we're moving on to that portion in the text when he says that he will do that. But Jesus in the process made an astonishing statement in calling every earthly father evil. And that's because in comparison to the father in heaven, no matter whether your father was a, a good dad or a, a bad dad, compared to father in heaven, we're all evil. For those of you who've had bad fathers who abused you and hurt you and mocked you, who told you that you were a failure, that you'd never be anything more than that, that you're ugly, that no one could ever love you, I hurt for you. It is a grievous thing for a dad who should by nature model something of the relationship we have with the Heavenly Father to make that very word father bitter in your mouth, please do know that God's not done with your story. His justice is on the track, and it will arrive at just the right time. He's able to mend what's broken and repair what's been shattered. But please know this. Whether your father was loving or hateful, your father in heaven is not like that. To those who have a loving father, when warm thoughts well up inside you every time you hear the word dad, your father in heaven is not like that. He is all that and infinitely more. There's just no way to wrap your arms around the greatness of such a reality. Don't stop with the picture in your mind of dad. Because God is so much more. But for those of you who have had a bad dad, your father in heaven is also not like that. He's unutterably different. He hates hateful ways. He loves 
faithfulness. He never takes advantage of his children. He never compromises their well-being to further his own purposes. He never uses his children or abuses his children or laughs at them when they're down. God is the perfect father. His fatherhood is illustrated in good earthly fathers, but not fully explained. Much like a cartoon drawing is sort of like the real person, but in many ways very much not like You can recognize certain features in the cartoon that answer to the original, but they're otherwise very distant. And his fatherhood is contrasted with wicked fathers, much like setting a white piece of paper on a black backdrop makes the whiteness seem extra bright and the blackness seem extra dark. God is not like that. I want to just, as we bring this portion of this message to a close, to ask you to think about what we've just concluded with. God is your Father who loves you, and He loves you with all the authority and power of the Almighty God. You've not done anything to earn His love or deserve it. He is loving you because of Himself. Because he is good. So that means that the love he has for you is utterly unshakable. And he invites you into this relationship through Jesus. The only way, the truth and the life. The only way to the Father. Through Jesus to come to him and experience what you have never experienced. No matter how good your dad was. No matter how bad your dad was. He's inviting you to come experience the security. And the blessing and the relationship and the warmth of a personal connection to your Father in heaven. And that's the only place from which you're going to be able to change. There's just no other way, apart from such security, to be able to take the radical steps that change will require. Change is always stepping into foreign territory. It always requires stepping into foreign territory, into the unknown, into places that you haven't been before. And that's what God is calling us to do. Because the ultimate change that God is looking for, well, he details it for us in Romans 8.29. He says that he's looking for people to be changed into the image of his son. Yeah, that's the change that God's looking for. And guess what? We haven't been there yet. (laughs) That's why it's foreign territory. We're going to get to step out with God into change that we cannot even yet imagine. We can read about the Lord Jesus. We can understand some things. We can see how he preaches, see how he addresses the multitude, see how he heals the sick, see how he rises from the dead. Yes, we can know those things. But God is calling us to know them not as facts alone, but to know him to actually experience the astonishing reality that God is your Father. Lord bless you, cause His face to shine upon you as you remember that you have a Father, a Father in heaven, a Father who loves you because of how good He is. Go in peace.